You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We're speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. Yeah, good to talk with you. Uh, Jeremy, we have an interesting result. It's election fever here in America, but the election that you and I are interested in is the Science Fiction Writers of America. Yeah, yeah. SIFWA had some um, some pretty, pretty controversial um, elections going on this year. Um, the previous election, there was an insurgency can- candidate um, John Scalzi was running a, a writing campaign, um, and he didn't he didn't win. And kind of the old guard and um, the civil officers uh, maintained control of the organization. But um, the last results kind of represented a, a big substantial shift, and the uh, the old guard candidate Andrew Burt um, actually uh, lost by a, a huge margin, and he was involved in some of the um, more controversial. Um, e-piracy, um, cease and desist letters that actually took down legitimate versions of works, and um, and he kind of had tone-deaf ear to a, a lot of writers' concerns. And so um, I think both the people who voted in the last election, as well as the, the, the Internet chatting class, um, were not too happy with, with Andrew Burt. And so the recent CIFO elections really, um, I think, were... Big turning point, a needed turning point for the organization, because there was uh, they were being pointed at as a organization that was um, irrelevant or not in touch. And so, hopefully, these um, these elections mean that uh, the organization will um, turn things around. Well, it, it's it's so ironic that the science fiction writers, who one would think would be future looking, had spent so much time trying to entrench in a very old style uh, model of. Um, economics, trying to preserve this idea of copyright when, uh, as, and I think Cory Doctorow's really got got it nailed here, or, or maybe he's uh, talking about Bill O'Reilly, the, um, um, Tim O'Reilly, uh, that the uh, the problem with, with writers isn't that there's too many copies of their work out there. That's just not an issue, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's to the point where, um, I mean, there is a school of thought that says if somebody's out there pirating your book, you're pretty damn lucky because most of the broader culture doesn't really care about your work at all. Um, but I mean, it's a it is a legitimate concern, and certainly me as a as an intellectual property holder, somebody who's licensed these copyrighted works, you know, piracy is something that I'm very concerned about. But there are, you know, legitimate and productive ways to go about it, and there are unproductive ways to go about it. And um, some of the views that the previous um, office holders in CIFWA had expressed. Um, seem to me to be kind of counterproductive and seem to a lot of people to be kind of counterproductive. Well, until uh, my take would be that uh, until we get some kind of electronic paper that has at least some competition for books, books are still a much preferred reading uh, medium as opposed to the screen, especially since most people who spend their time looking at the screen spend looking their time looking at the screen working. So it's almost you know, impossible to even think about relaxing and enjoying a book. Well, I, I kind of disagree with you on that, and um, my, my gut feeling on this kind of terrifies me. 
um, because I think it'll be a quick, relatively quick in publishing terms, uh, terms um, generational shift. I think a uh, younger generation of readers that grows up um, reading stuff electronically won't have much of an issue reading stuff um, in whatever convenient electronic format there is. Um, but, you know, it's a conservative um, industry, as evidenced by the, uh, <laughs> by the previous CIFO administration, and, you know, I think the truth is probably going to be somewhere between our, our two different views there. <laughs> Well, um, and this uh, takes us to uh, something that uh, let's talk a little bit about the Hugos. Okay. Uh, one of the Hugo nominations uh, that has a little bit of controversy around it is Barry Malzberg's Hugo for Breakfast in the Ruins. This uh, it's second go round, isn't it? it, it <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, it's a collection of his essays, um, and about uh, a third to half of the book is made up of essays that were. Um, originally published um, in the early eight, or originally collected in the early eighties, and they're basically kind of challenged the the kind of golden age of science fiction. You know, it wasn't life great for writers' um, view of science fiction, and in particular in the in the early eighties when the upper echelon of science fiction writers were just starting to break out, and Star Wars had happened, and you know, there's a broader kind of popular conception of science fiction, there's a lot of kind of like, you know, back padding, you know, back padding and, um, you know, kind of glad handling about, oh, isn't science fiction great? And Barry's collections of essays were a bit dour and a bit kind of, you know, emphasized the fact that it was still a fringe market that, you know, didn't have a lot of long-term, long-lasting impact. And not a lot of people wanted to hear that in the early 80s. And... Um, a lot of his things have either proven to be um, prescient or, you know, proven to be more accurate assessments of history than, you know, than the other more rose-colored glass views of of the, of, the, of that time period. So this new collection has has that original collection, Engines of the Night, I believe, was what it was originally published under. It has that Engines of the Night um, and uh, about, uh, you know, a half dozen to a dozen other um, new essays written since then. And, you know, Barry kind of has the reputation of being the, the grumpy old guy of science fiction. But, um, you know, he was there through most of it, um, you know, from the, from the 60s on, and he saw it firsthand. And I think he has a lot to be grumpy about, but more importantly, I think his insights are, are tremendous. I mean, I, I raced through the collection late last year and was actually flabbergasted by how, you know, stunningly relevant it was and is to to the science fiction genre, um, and I personally, you know, will be voting for it. But um, I, I I think the Sean Tan book was also in that category is probably going to get the um, get the vote. But I'd I'd really love to see Barry win a Hugo because he's an important writer. He's never won a Hugo. He's been nominated a couple times, but he's never won. And I think this one would be incredibly appropriate to give him a Hugo for. Well, uh, let's. Z- Let's talk about uh, the best novels. Um, I, I, I think I'm looking at the right list, part of the list here. 382 ballots cast? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, the Yiddish Policeman's Union by Michael Chabon. This won the SFWA's uh, best novel of the year, and that's a pretty unusual change, isn't it? I mean, this is a, a literary novel and lacks a lot of the affect of what we usually think of as science fiction. Yeah, that was actually... Um one that caught me by surprise. I, I didn't expect to see it on the ballot like that, but um, 
you know, that is good to see because um, it, I think it represents a, a, a opening up of, you know, that, that kind of like insular insularism that the science fiction ghetto, you know, it's like, oh, the literary people are out to get us and they just don't like us. And, you know, to see the popular, um, the popular Hugo ballot kind of have that on, the, uh, on there, I think kind of gets beyond that unhealthy attitude. And we have, of course, uh, uh, Charles Strauss' book, Halting State, which is a, a, a delightful book. Um, but uh, And as much as I enjoyed it, I think that uh, it probably lacks a little bit of the heft compared to both um, Yiddish Policeman's Ball and also Brazil by Ian MacDonald. What a, a wonderful book that was. And, and Ian MacDonald, it's nice to see him get some American uh, press again because he was out of print in America for quite some time. Yeah, well, his last novel... Um his last novel was also on the ballot, and um, you know, for best novel. And so I think he's been getting some press and getting some popularity, which is absolutely great to see. I, I think it's a really spectacular, you know, Hugo ballot because it is such a broad range. You know, the, the Strauss and you know, all three of those novels are just so different from each other. I think it shows how healthy the genre is. Yes, yes, and we have a, a, an absolutely classic uh, science fiction novel, *The Last Colony* by John Scalzi. Now, what's interesting about this to me is that he's been nominated. Here's a man who's been on the ballot for uh, authoring the best science fiction novel of the year, but he's also on the ballot as the best fan writer. And it interests me that the uh, pros are also the best fans, huh? Yeah. Well, it. Uh, there's been a lot of online discussion about this um, because the nature of his fan writing is his blog, and I really think that um, you know the internet has changed. The in- I really think that the internet has changed the nature of of fan writing, and um, but even but even back when it was print fanzines that were mimeographed, you know, you had professional writers, writers with professional sales, who were writing in these you know, fan journals. So I don't think that much has changed. It's just that the, the audience, the size of the audience who can, you know, who can end up reading um, this fan's writing have, have really um, changed because of the Internet. So I, it, he's a fan favorite. He really, you know, his writing, both his nonfiction and his fiction, really speaks to, uh, you know, to the modern readership. And so um, he's a really nice guy, and that really comes across in his, uh, in his nonfiction. So, you know. I don't see that as too much of a, a problem. No, and I think one of the things that makes this um, so interesting is that uh, what what makes it so apparent is that the um, fans cannot, not only can the fans get feedback from him on the Internet, but also they can leave comments in the blog. And I think that really ups the intensity and the interest uh, and the interaction between the authors and the fans. And I think that's a really good thing for the genre. Um, yeah, it... Yes and no. I, I think I'm going to disagree with you on this. Um, I think there's a strong tradition of like letters columns and the fanzines and magazines where there would be a give and a take and a back and forth. Um, and so I think it's a continuation of that tradition. But I think the signal-to-noise ratio, because of the immediacy of that feedback and because of the perceived casualness of that feedback, often leads to unproductive exchanges, you know, flame wars, just break out over the smallest things. Um, and I think, you know, when people were forced to, you know, consider their words, they wouldn't have the immediate gratification of seeing them, you know, in print for, you know, weeks or months. They'd lend a lot more weight and thought to to the nature of the dialogue that was going to be conducted. 
So, you know, the immediacy, I think, also creates a, a certain amount of, of um, fluff to, to, that, to that exchange. And so it's harder to find that core back-and-forth dialogue. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I've seen tremendous dialogues going on within the science fiction field between authors and, and fans and critics. Um, but they are getting harder and harder to find. Well, to wit, the one that uh, gave birth to the new weird over on the third <laughs> alternative uh, boards. And while you may bemoan the state of uh, fan and author communications, I have four words for you, nightshade billboards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and the signal-to-noise ratio wasn't always very good there either, but it did open up a lot of, a lot of dialogue. And so... Yeah, right alongside the third alternative boards was the, oh boy, there's <laughs> a lot of heated discussion. Um, and I think very valuable discussion, so I, I can't poo-poo it too much. But, um, you know, there's there's good along with the bad when it comes to that immediacy. Uh, another thing I was really interested to see was uh, Karen Joy Fowler's win. Um, and this, I thought, paralleled the uh, uh, win by uh, uh, Michael Chabon and, and if I'm not mistaken, that story ties in quite uh, tightly to her her new novel, which has nothing to do with the genre, other than the fact that everybody who reads the genre will enjoy it immensely. Yeah, Karen, um, it's it's nice to see her win there um, and see her re-embraced by the genre. She's been, you know, ostensibly working outside of the genre, um, you know, since you know, Sarah Canary or you know before then even. Um, it's her short fiction that she's mostly known for as a science fiction writer, I believe. And, but you're right, her, her novels are, are very enjoyable. Her, histor- her sister Noon, her uh, historical San Francisco novel is absolutely spectacular um, and I think would be enjoyed by a science fiction audience. And so, I don't know, you start getting into um, discussions of technique and science fictional techniques being used on non-science fiction material, and and where where the interest lies amongst people who do consume science fiction are they are they are they focused on you know the furniture of science fiction or is it something intrinsic in the way science fiction narratives are told that that they find gripping um, and it's obviously a little bit of both um, you know her her win there demonstrates that well one thing I can say about looking at all of these. Um, awards list, the Locus Awards finalists, the Hugo nominees, the Science Fiction Writers of America nominees. We haven't talked about the Shirley Jackson Awards finalists. This is a very interesting award. I haven't really heard of it before, but I mean, the people who are up for it, we've got Michael Mignola and Christopher Golden's Baltimore, which is a wonderful book. Um, and, and a nice uh, uh, adventure, I thought, for a mainstream publisher to do something that looked uh, quite a bit like a small press. Yeah, yeah. No, that was a, a really... Um, fun illustrated novel project that um, you know. I guess uh, Mike and Mike and Chris have worked together for for quite a while now, and I guess they brought that to the their editor at Bantam there, and she she took it and ran with it. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a really cool book to see get that kind of publicity and promotion and support. And, and I'm happy to see Sharp Teeth by Toby Barlow on there as well. <laughs> yeah, the other the other really kind of out there strong you know kind of. Um, non-commercial type thing that, you know, was you know, the mainstream publisher really got behind and put out there, you know, a prose poem. <laughs> Not what we expect to find on, on the awards ballots. Right, and so the Shirley Jackson Awards, um, it's, a, it's a juried award, um, and it's, it's a relatively recent, uh, recent award. I think, that, I think this is the first year that they've announced finalists. 
Um, but they're, you know, seem to be focused on the surreal and the magic realism and the, the fantastic, um, and ostensibly literary fantastic, but it does have a nice spread. I mean, this ballad has a nice spread of, you know, quote-unquote, the low and the high. It's not all just a bunch of mainstream literary novels with fantastic elements or, you know, traditionally magic realist stuff. It's, it's a really good spread. Well, uh, uh, one thing we can point to, Tokyo Year Zero by David Peace. Pierce, Beast. Um, this is a book that I wouldn't expect to find on there, but uh, it was a fine book. And uh, again, as you say, it has a really, this uh, awards nomination has a, a nice spread. And I think that's what the job of awards. It's not, for me, it's not necessarily the winners. It's all, all of these choices thrown up before us gives us a, a look at kind of the peaks of, of the year of the genre in a way that, you know, uh, gives us some nice choices to look at stuff that we might not have bought yeah absolutely and um and like i said it's a it's a the shirley jackson award in particular is a a a relatively recent one and so i think it's interesting to see the composition and the choices that um that juried award those judges make um it's it's different from you know a world fantasy ballot um but i think the the I think the differences are something to celebrate. It's nice to get a, a, a different group of people's, you know, look at things, you know, and that seeing Tokyo Year Zero there, you know, seeing Sharp Teeth there. Uh, those are two books that probably won't end up on a world fantasy ballot, but um, definitely should be noted. We've been speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books. We've been talking about the awards for this year. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. Yeah, great talking with you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.